This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and I'm joined today by Lois Presser, author of Unsaid, Analyzing Harmful Silences. This book was published by the University of California Press in December 2022. Harm takes shape in and through what is suppressed, left out, or taken for granted. This book is a guide to understanding and uncovering what is left unsaid, whether concealed or silenced, um, suppressed or excluded, with strategies that can be added to the toolkits of social researchers and activists alike. Unsaid provides a richly layered approach to analyzing and dismantling the power structures that both create and arise from what goes without saying. Lois Presser, who goes by Lowe, is professor of sociology and distinguished professor in the humanities at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. She's a co-editor of Narrative Criminology, Understanding Stories of Crime, and the author of Inside Story, How Narratives Drive Mass Harm, Being a Heavy Life, Stories of Violent Men, and Why We Harm. Lowe, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much, Jen. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And before we dive into chatting about your book, I would love if you could share a little bit about yourself. Um, If you could let listeners know where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you ended up in the field that you're in. Yeah, sure. I am a native New Yorker, uh, born in Brooklyn, raised in Queens. As a young adult, bounced around Brooklyn and Manhattan following sublets and house sitting situations. Uh, went to attended college at Cornell University and um, masters in public and private management from Yale. Um, that was a um, sort of a foray that was inspired by working with crime victims in Manhattan. That was a first job after college. And I rose to the level of directing a program to assist crime victims. And uh, this master's program at Yale seemed like a good idea. But um, I really never left the criminal justice arena behind. 
I uh, did various stints uh, as a researcher for different criminal justice agencies in New York. And um, it was at New York City Department of Probation that I met academics and liked the way they thought, liked the breadth of inquiry that they brought to evaluating programs for people on probation and so forth, and was really attracted to academia for thinking deeply about issues um, and trying to help solve social problems um, through that kind of depth. So I uh, embarked on a PhD program at the University of Cincinnati, and that led me to, uh, to hone my uh, identity as a uh, sociological criminologist uh, at Tennessee, where I've been for the last two decades. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, so turning to this book, Unsaid, could you share some of the goals that you had when you were writing this, uh, the main things you wanted to accomplish in the conversations that you hoped it would start? Sure. I started um, developing the book before the pandemic, um, uh, but it nonetheless uh, has uh has become a pandemic book, I'll explain. But it, really the initial impetus was to help students, my students and students who I mentor elsewhere, because what I was catching from them, from teaching, especially a graduate seminar on discourse analysis, is that they, they, they were lighting on how absences in some texts or political statements, speeches, tracks, um, were, were doing work, that there are things missing here or perspectives missing, or look at the way that politician is phrasing that. And they, they, they say there's subtext there, or that's a kind of a sneaky way, or there's, there's code there. And actually... This moves us into pandemic times, you know, with um, dog whistles and code words being used in messages about, oh, COVID policy or immigration policy or um, uh, variety voter um, uh, rights. And so in the political domain as well, regular people were sort of like, there's there's some code there. But, and here's my my big point, Um, but I, I saw that there's a lack of rigor so again, in the educational um, context, you know, my students would say, oh, there's, there's something not being said here, but they weren't bringing um, rigor to it, nor was I, because I, I didn't have a methodology for really pinning down in any careful, systematic way. And that's what we want from research, to be careful about things, to, to have what one does be traceable and accountable. So so. I was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I get that too, that they're not saying that, but like, how are you going to present that in some really solid way? So 
as with a couple of my other books, I, I was like, is, has someone done this? Is there a methodology? No, I'm not really finding it a comprehensive methodology. So I'm going to get to work on, uh, you know, developing that. So that, so it, so I, I was really motivated to, to educate or to guide uh, students and other uh, people. And yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there isn't methodology or even vocabulary. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, You know, the scope of things that go unsaid and that's, uh, you know, and and has impact in the world is is really vast. And I was sort of, you know, in the at the get go kind of overwhelmed by the project. uh, but it can be, you know, sort of um, mapped out. Uh, but like you said, there's vocabulary, there's patterns of speaking, there's just, hey, the, the perspective of prisoners is just not in this law policy on prisoners or on prisons. So, um, yeah, there's there's just a lot there. And then I think it was also or is remains a a challenging project because most of what we communicate consists, if you will, metaphorically, of not said things. Like right now I am saying certain words and then think of all the words I'm not saying or think of all the topics I'm not introducing right now. So, um, and you couldn't communicate any other way uh, without, you know, sort of very specifically selecting the particular words and topics. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big enterprise. It is a big enterprise. Um, Although I think you've, you've laid it out in a really clear system in this book. Um, it, it fell into place a lot more clearly for me as I was reading. Uh, so in the first chapter, you tackle that methodology um, that you noted was needed and you lay out some, some, you lay out some methodological suggestions for analyzing what's unsaid. And then each of the chapters deals with different categories. I'm impressed that you were able to like find and clearly articulate these categories of unsaid as a way to try out the methods. So I feel like we'll talk about methodology as we go through, and we can maybe start with chapter two, where you're looking at overstatement and understatement. So what are the key things that you see overstatement and understatement accomplishing, and how do you suggest that readers and researchers can identify and understand these in a text? Yeah, yeah. So understatement is sort of straightforward, unsaid, like, oh, He's not mentioning how this, you know, um, building reconstruction will affect the tenants or something. Um, you know, it's not there um, or too little was said. I guess the, the it's, it's more about elaboration than something just boldly being absent. It's over, overstatement works in conjunction with understatement to sort of paper over something or to cloak the fact that something is minimally treated. Um, and, 
as I started looking at variety, at a variety of materials, I saw this more and more that they were working together. So in a sense, overstatement became much more of interest to me. And the analyst, the, the person approaches some material and says, you know, there's a lot here about, you know, this, this topic. And we, you're sort of killing that topic. It's like we, enough with that. So there's a, there's, there's, there's a need to inquire about superfluous or extraneous words and also to inquire about superfluous extraneous points made like you you've killed that point or there's just a lot of words here and I'm I'm a discourse analyst and I'm really attuned and a lot of my colleagues in linguistics are too to like just looking at like well those that you've got three adjectives and they kind of mean the same thing what are you doing there what work is that doing um so I lay out, you know, you said we'll we'll get we can't help with this book to talk about methodology, but hopefully it's interesting. You know, one asks, what's what does there seem to be too much of? What does there seem to be too little of? And what are these patterns doing for the the overall message of the text? Um, and you know, comparison is key, the comparison between too much, too little, or folks will, um, in the research world, will also compare across texts. Oh, look at how this news outlet, you know, is completely not mentioning, um, you know, the, the war in Syria. And look at, and but that's a major thing going on as seen by these other news outlets. Um, so that's another way to approach it. That's not really, I'm not, it's called cross corpus comparison. I don't um, do that too much, but um, that's another way. But, you know, in social research, you're always, you know, ultimately comparing. That's that's making me think how I think towards the end of the chapter you noted that sometimes you need to have some prior knowledge then to do this to be able to spot the overstatement and an understatement. I guess um, this is a tricky question, but do you have any suggestions for how far, how folks can start doing this even as learning like subject mastery? Um, is that there is, a, an yeah. inroad? That is such a good question. Maybe we won't solve that. Wait, I'm sorry. It, uh, you I said maybe it. we won't solve that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to, though. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example um, of where either a student or just I can think of an instance of like not really having. Um, a sense of things. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, I mentioned the, the civil war in Syria, and I, I, was, I was thinking of, of a, um, I'm not going to remember the author's names, but um, a paper where they notice that whereas war is being discussed and refugees, they're not mentioning that very major example. And they must have known about Syria. Um, you know, I guess the inroad could be that, you know, one does that substance related work that has nothing to do with text or discourse, but just says, 
okay, uh, you know, wars and what what was going on in that time period and what, what do we know? Um, yeah, generally speaking, I'm in sociology and most, but not, but very much not, all my colleagues are also in social research and they start with a lot of subject mastery. Like they know about, you know, murders of civilians, um, especially civilians of color by law enforcement. And they, they know about that. And then they're, and then we're working out like, well, how, you know, how is this material, um, interfacing with, with those episodes. So then it's pretty like, it kind of rolls off of them. Like, Oh, look at how the, you know, these news outlets are talking the word tragedy, which brings in, uh, intimations of inevitability and nobody's really responsible for a tragedy versus murder, you know? And so they're, they're good at the, at the substance. So I guess we didn't solve it because I said, well, most of the people I know are <laughs> know about the substance. <laughs> That's fair. Although I, I do, I mean, this is probably a thing to to try out, but I do think that the questions that you suggest as method can help with subject mastery, even while diving into trying to find the overstatement and understatement. I think those questions of what what is there not enough of can make us ask, what else do I need to learn about this subject to understand what there's not yeah. enough of? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Anyway, things things to try out, um, yeah. things to practice on students. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the the next chapter uh, is titled "Figurative Expression" and shifts to looking at things that are said but leave other things unsaid. So metaphor and metonym specifically, and. Uh, after talking through some analytical approaches for unpacking the impact of these, you reiterate that figurative, figurative language can support harm doing. Could you explain that conclusion for readers, perhaps by leading us through the analysis, the analytical methods that you suggest? Yeah, yeah that's, that's sure. I'm trying to think of a, of, um, a good example. Um, I'll use the example of a discourse analyst, um, Chin Van Dyke. Um, so often news media and politicians will talk about waves of immigration. And, um, so analysts of metaphors, metaphors is probably the most famous figurative expression for, um, and, they'll say that um, they will uh, distinguish between source domain and target domain. Target domain is immigration. It's what you are presently talking about. Where's the waves coming from? That's coming from some source domain, some, like you're sourcing some other world. And that world is oceans and so the method is to ask, what is the source domain for discussing immigration? Target. Um, the source domain is oceans or the natural world more generally. And then the 
Um, the next question is, what are things like in the source domain? Well, things are oceans, the natural world, formidable, uh, potentially overwhelming, sometimes seeming placid, but any moment sort of um, threatening. And um, that's what waves are like. Um, and so what is being kind of smuggled in, I like that verb form, to discussion of immigration, even pretty tepid treatments, news articles, is that immigration is potentially very overwhelming and threatening to our existence. Um, so there the, the it's, it's all about this source versus target. And the, the idea is that uh, what's not said are um, features or derived from features of the source domain. And there's tons of, I mean, we, we use metaphors all the time. It's pretty much ineradicable from, from our language. And, um, but which metaphors do we use and what is it that we're, you know, meaning people to receive? What, what are we, what are we intending that people take immigration to be like? Um, or maybe we're, maybe the individual speaker is not intending at all, but, but then this is the cultural surround is, you know, sort of has, has sort of brought us to constructing immigration in that particular way. Yeah, absolutely. There are there are like cultural metaphors that we adopt because we don't want to <laughs> say other specific things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or we we you know maybe the individual speaker doesn't isn't in touch with. I don't want to say that, but it's just received way of speaking that um, we're sort of you know bringing along. Uh, and so then in the next chapter. You examine missing subjects. Uh, so chapter four looks at when subjects are missing entirely from texts. I was curious about how this kind of unsaid differs from the understatement of chapter two. And so what are the different impacts then that we see of subjects that are missing entirely? And what are the questions we should ask in order to uncover those? Yeah, I, this this chapter is sort of a thing apart in a way, but I think it's what the unsaid methodology, what, dis, what makes it kind of unique. So not just that, oh, people are cloaking over things and they're, they're, they're using metaphors that kind of bring, smuggle in some meaning, but whole peoples are not there, not mentioned. Uh, their perspectives, the um, experiences that they have, events in their lives, the context of their lives. So all these things I call missing subjects. And critical scholars and activists are always saying, you know, hey, think of us or us too. And, um, you know, me, I'm referencing me too. And, you know, our lives matter too. And so there's absolutely already there this you know this um strong claim of having gone missing from official histories from you know contemporary uh reports on a problem um and and yet again i thought okay how can we make this more rigorous well i believe it is rigorous but i also see how it is 
tricky because uh, I, in setting up this methodology, had to set up who should be included, you know, what, what's the foundation for this particular maneuver. And that to me, after a lot of consideration was, you know, the subaltern of, of society or the, 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 the sub, the subordinated groups. And so the, the, the key operating question is, is this, is this, um, communication um what subordinated beings would is this how they would play it is this is this does this in, include them does it in, does it um express the perspectives that they would express and then it's you know i i think this is very tricky business like well how much of you know that group's perspective versus the other but in in a, in effect it's an intervention um so um you know would they is a lot of uh conditionals would would subordinate or subaltern beings um you know it, it, you know advance this as the right as the context um um, and, and, and in some cases, I mean, I've thought a lot about this. It's not, I'm thinking about um, the, the production, the quick, the relatively fast, thankfully, production of COVID vaccinations. And so the sort of um, um, disinformation um, bubble was sort of like, it's too fast. So there, and that kind of laid the basis for claims that if there was something tricky about the vaccination, something sinister, but it was just too fast, you know, and the context that was missing from that particular conversation was not a subaltern one, but a scientific one, which is that, no, we've been preparing, like we had a lot of info on COVID on, on um, coronaviruses, and we had a lot of pieces of the puzzle for the vaccination, and that wasn't, you know, in that conversation. So I guess there it's not like subordinated people, but, but you know, just like, well, are we hearing more fully about the context? Um, and, and sort of, it was a narrow context, like, gee, I couldn't put together a, a vaccine that fast, you know, like it was a sort of a a sloppy sort of narrow context. Yeah. I mean, the things that you're saying also about subordinated people um, and what to do when you've identified them as missing in, in whatever dialogue is going on makes me think about a lot of the discourse that I hear in um, the work I do in archives and this constant realization of how specific groups are not in the archive uh, because of how archives have historically been constructed. But then these questions we need to ask of, um, does that group actually want to be represented in this archive where material about their history would be controlled by this type of institution? Or would they actually rather that it be presented somewhere else? And so there are these tricky problems to solve. We can't just solve it by adding the people in. Oh, Jen, I love that point. And by the way, I just want to just interject that there's so much cool stuff from the information sciences people on silence in the archive, as you know. And, um, and actually I think, I think I, I think it was an early literature that I tripped not that I'm saying I, you know, 
you know, I got it in my pocket and I became an expert on that literature, but I know that that is a big conversation. And the, 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 the nuance that you're bringing up about like the, 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 what, what do, what do those excluded persons want and what's their take on inclusion, what inclusion would be at, at, at a certain juncture in a certain body of work is, is a really, really good one. Um, and actually maybe I should revise, like, not just what, 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 what would, um, yeah, like just what would inclusion be like for those persons? Like, what would they, you know, what, what would that mean for them? Not just like, just add, you know, like, okay, here's more stuff. Yeah. That's that. And that's, that really resonates with all sorts of diversity conversations these days. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so much to talk about there, but let's, let's shift to um, thinking about the, the fifth chapter where, Oh, I also really enjoyed this. You discuss how cultural structures require or enable certain cultural gaps. So we're getting back again to this idea that like our culture is is creating a lot of the unsaid. Um, and so I would love if you could share with listeners about some of the cultural structures you write about in this chapter and how these facilitate different types of unsaid. Yeah, it's, and it's a big, uh, um, it's a it's a big question when you're talking about like culture, anything. Um, the an example that I, I sort of just passed through in passing through the work of Arthur Frank and other people who studied like illness stories, but with so many. Um, friends who've had cancer, I was thinking about the sort of master narrative of experiencing cancer and the heroic cancer person afflicted with cancer, the survivor, you know, and, and even if that person passes, um, the, the, they were brave and there's no room in that story for just like, the pain was absolute and I felt selfish and awful and I didn't fight it. And I didn't, you know, I didn't like, you know, kick cancer's butt. And so, and I think that's really um, a dominant sort of set of stories about dealing with illness. And we don't like, um, and, and almost don't even hear, alternatives. And so, so there's an example of where a sort of big story in the culture just sort of pushes away um, alternatives. And therefore you could say that the unsaid is the abject pain experienced unheroically. Um, You just, it's just not tellable really. And if you would eulogize your, you know, relative, and say they just felt crappy and that was um it just wouldn't it would be like but but where's but where is this coming round to you know where's the heroic thing you know gonna where is that gonna enter um yeah and so i really i think this business of how culture is enabling and even requiring certain silences there's so much there's so many illustrations of that that i see and it really does kind of poke holes in the idea that we're going to eradicate that we're going to air everything i mean that's just doesn't make any sense you know that there's not going to be 
there are not going to be silences and absences. Um, and so um, it, it, it keeps pointing toward understanding silences and absences, gauging harmful ones, thinking about um, uh, targeting ways to, 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 to not uh, allow harmful silences to persist. Yeah, um, that's a really terrific example. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's, I guess, sobering to realize that we won't do away with these things entirely because of various cultural constructs, but I guess we can at least ask ourselves to be aware of them. Um, yeah. And I think that's, you know, the work you're asking us to do. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, actually, it occurs to me that um, the sort of progress, heroic story of illness, of, of terminal illness, is maybe more um, stronger in the United States and, um, and, or more salient. And so when you think about other cultures, you know, it sort of also opens up to other possibilities that are more authentic to, to actual persons. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so then moving along to your final chapter, you discuss some of the limitations about the methods you've written about in this book what are some of those limitations and do you see those pointing us towards uh, areas where we should develop other analytical models? Are they inspiring any other new projects that you're personally working on or where do you think those limitations take us? Yeah. Um, so I like to think about limitations. I really think of this as a, a matter or project that is uh, an exploration and, um, instead of my new projects, I'd like other people to, to be inspired and then to, 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 to do stuff with this or, or against it in any case. Um, probably the one that, um, okay. So, so as far as limitations go, um, one that cultural, um, sociologists are always hearing is that, well, so much for what's said and what's not said, very interesting, but material arrangements are ultimately more important or more influential. And that's kind of one that um, we're sort of used to addressing um, in terms of, oh, well, semiotic or or cultural um, things and material things shape one another and you can't imagine, you know, a law that isn't shaped by meaning making and so forth. So that's one. Um, it's kind of related is the idea that maybe what things say, explicit statements are more important than what's tacit. That's what's unsaid. And, um, you know, people talk about saying the quiet part out loud and the, and there, as if there's something like more consequential about the out loudness as opposed to the quiet, when it was quiet. And actually I think people sort of say, well, it doesn't really matter. And maybe it's even more helpful to get these things out. So I don't, anyway, but, uh, but I'm, I'm moving to my favorite, which is, um, because it's, it's maybe the most problematic 
people call people out um, for um, not saying stuff. And that's harmful too. And so my example as a criminologist, my go-to is that um, uh, people who have raped, who I've interviewed will say, well, she didn't say she didn't want this. She didn't say no. So they're calling out, they're, they're, they're impugning the victim for not saying. And that whole thing is like, is a rape myth that, you know, well, she needed to have or uttered this in order for it to be a rape. She needed to have uttered stop. No, you know, I don't want this. So, so it's like me too. I'm also calling out unsaid. I'm in line, you know, I'm in a community with these people who've raped and are, you know, um, so it's, it's really, really tricky um, to, to sort of say, this is, um, you know, you, you know, that, unsaid is a sphere of harm doing, but I, but it, but I think it only sort of bolsters the point that, um, unsaid is, is a real problematic and is very socially does a lot of social work. Um, even if people who rape are, are, are alive to that, you know, even if they themselves are sort of using it or thinking, maybe they're really thinking like I needed to hear this, these words and I did not. So therefore it was all, all okay. Um, so it, it, it only, I think I, I like to think about it. Um, and to, you know, sort of, so I guess it does beget some future project, but I don't know what it is about like the ways in which unsaid is harmful and also calling out unsaid can be strategic and um, sort of malevolent. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating, I don't know, area to work and articulate. Um, well, before we wrap up, I want to note an important point that you made in chapter five, um, that in the context of an interview, the interviewer plays a really important role in shaping <laughs> what's said and what's unsaid. Um, I, I read that and chuckled. And so with that in mind, is there anything we haven't talked about that you yeah. want to add in here before yeah. we wrap up? Yeah, well, I think that was, um, I really... Uh, also chuckled when um, knowing that um, that you recognize that, and um, I think um, only that um, unsaid analysis I think is sort of like a mature phase of thinking about discourse and the effects of what people say and write and communicate, and it's um, it's always been there. There's always been a latent. Um, um, importance to absences and silences. And people have been saying that for a long time, but I think this is a, a time of, um, of, of just trying to sort of get our act together with how we're going to make, you know, strong claims about exclusions and silences and disappearances. Um, so I'm kind of, um, you know, excited for the exploration. And I always think about social research as um, sort of a community project as people um, uh, working ideas together. Um, so 
that's what I, I think I want audiences to know that there's a, there's a, um, very much a, a jointness to this, uh, to this endeavor. Yeah. And to me that, that resonates as a call to action for the rest of us to, um, to think seriously about this. Well, Lo, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Once again, my guest today is Lo Presser, author of Unsaid, published by the University of California Press. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you have been listening to the Scholarly Communications channel of the New Books Network. <laughs>